from KQED. You're listening to Cued Up, storytelling with heart. I'm Sandhya Dirks, and KQED's storytelling podcast takes a single story and dives deep. Right now, we're looking at college students who are struggling with homelessness, trying to finish school while having no secure place to live. So we've been trying to follow these three students for about a year now. And what we're realizing is that how these students see themselves and how we see them really says a lot about class in America and about the boundaries and assumptions we put onto ourselves and onto others. This episode is about a shapeshifter, a modern-day Jay Gatsby, a young man born to a poor family who is striving for greatness. He's on a mission to transform himself, but that kind of ambition can sometimes set you up for a big fall. Here's KQED's April Domboski. James De La Nueve. He told me up front it's not his real name. He really messed up his life in the last few years. So new name, new start. He needed it. He had been a star in high school. Class president, two marathons. But when he went to a private college on the East Coast, he felt his specialness dissolve in a sea of specialness. And then you go to college and you realize, oh man, everybody else is a shit too. He fell in with the wrong crowd during his first semester and started dabbling in graffiti and going on shoplifting sprees at Walmart. Like just walking out with a shopping cart, like filled to the brim. He got kicked out of school, then came home to L.A. and waved around for a few years. He got into it with his dad and got kicked out of the house. That's when he decided he was ready to turn things around and get back on track. And his old name wouldn't do anymore. I don't want people knowing where I am. It's just shame. Yeah. Like uh, a lot of bridges I burned. So he became James de la Nueve. Technically, this means James of the Nine. This was a mistake. James meant to choose the word for new. So I got to know him as the new James on the brink of his new life. I was at the Bruin Shelter in Santa Monica. It's a homeless shelter for college students run by other college students. I was there to do a profile of this youth-led altruism, and I was on the hunt for the ideal case study. When I met James, I knew I had found my guy. From the beginning, he was dropping golden quotes, like this one. Like, every day, like, is a constant reminder. Like, the world's just hammering at you. Yeah, you don't have a place to stay. It's like you're in class. It's the only thing you're thinking about. It's hard to focus on, like, the chalkboard. And this one. Because I'm not going to, like, stop going to school or anything like that. I can't do that for, like, my own sake. So I'm going hard at school, but at the same time, I have to deal, like, just every day, keeping myself alive. So he's a survivor. And he's a performer. Within a couple hours of meeting me, he let me follow him into the bathroom to witness his nighttime ablutions. I feel like I prepared my whole life for this. You know? You watch yourself, like, brushing your teeth every morning. And then you wonder, what if somebody was watching me? Someone like a radio reporter. And, you know, I'm just living out the dream right now. James says this a lot living the dream. Like, even though he lives in a homeless shelter, at least it's a five-minute bike ride to the beach. We wake up and we're still living the dream, like, you know, like we set out to do. Yep, the American dream. James's parents immigrated from the Philippines when they were his age. He's 21. So even though he struggled with school, he sees getting a degree as a kind of duty. 
I'm a first generation college student in my family in particular. So I was thinking, how can I assimilate my family? Because we're here to stay, I guess. Um, how do I best do that? Like I had to hop into an environment that was as different as possible. You know, from blue collar, like working class into like elite, elite. Another thing, James is edgy. He'd been on the streets for three months before landing a bed at the shelter. And he learned to parlay some of his bad habits from his first college go-round into some useful survival strategies. Like, I've been really good at, you know, just lifting things from stores. If I don't have food stamps, I'm lifting stuff. And I know if I get caught lifting, worst case scenario, I could get away with it. Like, no police called or anything like that because, you know, it's just food. Chicken wraps, chopped fruit, fresh juices. That is one skill, like, I've built on. I can't put on a resume, but I've built that skill throughout the entirety of summer. What's your strategy? How do you do it without getting caught? My strategy is this right here, clothing. He points to his pants. J. Crew. His shirt. Gap. His hat. Urban Outfitters, you know, dressing well is how I get away. Like, everybody wants to dress well. But for me, it's part of, like, everyday living. Like, I do have to dress well just so I can keep on doing this. So, like, when I walk into a store, I won't be noticed. Do you lift your clothes? Yes, I do. (laughs) Nothing on me, like, down to my drawers is paid for. He keeps his wire rim glasses spotless, his black hair short and tidy. He tells me he takes care to secure nice shampoo, moisturizer, and toner. I guess that explains his innocent baby face. If you walked by James on the street, you would never guess he's homeless. Like, people just generally don't, like, when you think about, like, homelessness, uh, like, uh, you're homeless, uh, boy. Putting an extra effort into my appearance could really deceive a person. This is how he escapes the attention of cops and campus police, which is important if you plan to sneak into an empty classroom at night to sleep. He didn't need to worry about that so much anymore now that he got the spot in the shelter. And he tells me he's ready to jump on this second chance. He says he gets up every morning by 6.15. Then he goes to the park to stretch and exercise. At 8, he's off to the library to study for a couple of hours before his calculus class. I was sold. James was this perfectly complex character. Rough past, the stealing. But he was poised for redemption. School, the American dream. But James wasn't what he seemed. He delivered himself in a perfect package, and I was all too eager to accept. This is the guy, I thought, the guy trying to make it, the one battling homelessness but still going to college, someone who can actually beat all the odds against him. But this is a story that didn't turn out that way. The guy I thought I knew was unknowable, and the story I thought I was telling did not have a happy ending. Early the next morning, as the sun is rising over Santa Monica, the other students filter out of the shelter. They're armed with blankets and a change of clothes. Because the shelter closes at 7 for the day and there's no shower, residents take naps in the library and shower at the gym. James is outside, trying to fix his bike. While he tinkers with the brakes, he admits that, yes, he stole the bike. 
I'm really sorry to the guy who originally owned this bike. To the owner, I'm taking care of it. James can't figure out the brakes, so he sets out on foot today, and I follow. About a half mile later, we get to campus, and James keeps on walking. He says he's going to his friend's house this morning, and I slowly start to realize there will be no stretching in the park today, no studying in the library, no calculus class. I've encountered my first lie. My heart sinks. Does James ever go to class? Is he even enrolled? But then I think, should I really be surprised? Just last night, James practically told me up front, he's a shapeshifter. Putting an extra effort into my appearance could really deceive a person. I didn't realize he meant me. But now I begin to understand. Sure, deception is part of surviving on the streets. But I think it's also a bit of a game for James. A political statement. Really catching people on, like, first impressions. Is that, like, I could catch you on a first impression. I could deceive you on, like, a first impression. It's like feeling like a snake or something like that. I catch a lot of people on first impressions a lot of time. They just don't know. James is fooling you for a reason. Homeless people lying on the street are too easy to ignore. But if James can catch you with his wire rim glasses and his J. Crew pants, then turn the conversation to his homelessness, you can't walk away. Like the same effort, the same effort that it takes to have a conversation, I'm putting in four times that effort to have like, you know, just normal conversations on a daily basis out there. I think James just wanted me to notice him. He wanted me to listen. And right as I'm realizing he might be a liar, he goes ultra honest on me. The confessions start rolling out. I'm not spending my nights studying as hard as I should be. He says the shelter volunteers called him into a disciplinary hearing a couple days ago. I've had alcohol on property. They don't permit that. I've been smoking on property, coming in late. He admits the stealing he's been doing, it's not always out of necessity. Maybe it's anger. You know, thinking about how you know, I was brought up, you know, not having that much. My dad, like, used to work, like, really, really hard and not have, like, a lot to show for it. So there's that kind of anger, like, you know, driving me. This opportunity he has to get back on track, he's squandering it. Like, I was thinking, I can't wait until I get into the shelter. I can start, like, you know, fulfilling all my plans and going forward with my life the way I want to. And then I get to shelter and I'm not doing that. When people ask James why, why cut class, why come home late, he usually says, I'm going through some things. The drinking and smoking, I'm dealing with some stuff. With me, the stuff, he calls it the diagnosis. I feel like they see me as like, you know, off the edge, which I am like really um, just, I don't know. I think like February, I was diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. February, a year ago. James tells me he's been seeing a psychiatrist through a mental health nonprofit. He gets medication, but he doesn't always take it regularly. Sometimes he gives it away to friends who he says need it more. Or sometimes he binges on it when he's stressed. You know, I'm not 
built for the streets, per se. Um, I have to pay attention to all my problems on my plate, because if one thing like you know eats at me, everything just crumbles. Like uh, the stakes are just a lot higher. So, as far as like dealing with my diagnosis, man, I'm intrigued, but I'm also confused. Who is this guy? He's given me so many contradictory identities, and I think they're all dueling inside his head. Is he the immigrant's son or the aspiring American intellectual? Is he the noble homeless student or the thieving rebel? Is his bipolar diagnosis the explanation for his behavior or the excuse? James himself can't seem to figure it out. If he's forging his own way in the world or teetering on the edge of failure. It's 8 a.m., and James and I have just walked two miles from the shelter to his friend Isaac's place. It's an old motel that's been converted to SROs for homeless youth with mental illness. Isaac is holding a beer when he opens the door. He hands it to James as we walk in. Cheers. Cheers. The room is small and cluttered and smells like cigarettes. Isaac pulls out two chairs for us, and he sits on the twin bed next to his girl, Caitlin, a traveler who's pausing here before moving on. She's still waking up, wearing Isaac's boxer shorts and smoothing her blonde dreadlocks. It's the twin bed. Seeing Caitlin in the twin bed, in those boxer shorts. It's a scene from my own past. My college boyfriend, Steve, lived in a place just like this. An old motel converted to studio apartments. He lived on the second floor, too. Steve was a lot like James. He dropped out of college after one semester, which he spent doing coke and recording his first singer-songwriter album. He spent another semester in a psychiatric hospital, recovering from a suicide attempt and confronting a new mental health diagnosis. This, by the way, was very attractive to me at the time. The drugs and music more so than the diagnosis. Steve was a redeemed bad boy who relieved me of my boring suburban adolescence. But he also willingly wallowed in dark places. None of the other boys wanted to visit with me. Isaac takes out a bag of American spirit tobacco and starts rolling a cigarette. James opens another beer. Like, I should be in the library right now, like, studying for whatever midterm. But instead, I go over here. An hour slips by. James says he's going to step out for a minute, then comes back with a couple mini bottles of Sutterholm Merlot. The conversation turns hazy and decidedly philosophical. I ask Isaac and James how they know each other. Isaac says they met at a mental health drop-in center. And that starts a debate about mental illness, whether it even exists, and whether any of them actually has one. Well, I have a history of, quote, depression, as you could call it. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't really think I'm depressed. Or like, I gotta call myself depressed, like back to like assimilating back in society or whatever. In society, it's like, I'm a depressed individual. And if I want to be part of society, I have to take on that role that they've given me. Why? Because I feel like that's the only way people like will see me or something like that. 
you know, these feelings of depression and anxiety, I think everyone has them. There's nothing actually wrong with us. I think what's wrong is that we're being taught something that we can't actually achieve. Youth in general, this generation is basically telling older generations, it's not what you think. That's not how we're thinking. I'm not depressed like you think. I'm just like bogged down by this world that you created for us. This world you created. I think James means this in the 21-year-old sense. You, the institutions, the schools, the social workers, the media. At the beginning of this party, James and Isaac were psyched to have me and my microphone there. But now I wonder if they're starting to tire of this project, even regret it. Not 10 minutes later, James wants to show me something. He takes a blue folder out of his backpack. It's a resume from the future. And that's everything I want my resume to look like in 10 years. It shows him graduating from Harvey Mudd in 2019 and finishing a master's degree in architecture and urban design at Columbia in 2022. I take a deep breath as I read this. Here's this young homeless guy, and his fantasy for the future is to build houses. Of course, the name he put at the top of the page is in keeping, Damien Nuevaus. The new James wants to morph again and become Damien Newhouse. Newhouse, I feel. Yeah. This is the identity I'm trying to get at at the end of the day. So maybe James isn't a shapeshifter. This back and forth between names and identities, maybe deception isn't the right word. James says he's a chameleon. But the thing about like chameleons is uh, they don't change color like at will. They're at the mercy of their environment. They don't have a choice in what color like your skin turns into. And so I'm running through the motions on a day-to-day basis, and my identity's changing, my colors are changing. And, you know, that's just like a lot of strain on me personally. And right now, maybe some of that strain comes from having me there, feeling like he has to say ambitious things, be the homeless college student I was looking for. And that seems to clash with what Isaac wants to do today. He starts dropping hints that their plans don't include me. Oh, yeah, I appreciate your time here. It's been a blessing. Yeah, do you... It's been wonderful. Do you want me to take off? Or are you guys ready to, like... Yes, uh, at the moment. Okay. We're about to get active. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean, you're about to get active? Have our adventures. Move around. Move around. Get in motion. Get in motion. Put in motions. I still don't get it. But it is clear that I'm getting kicked out. I leave quickly, holding all my gear in my arms, my head swirling with everything I just heard. In the void, I think of Steve again, my college boyfriend, and I see so many similarities with James. Steve lied, he stole sometimes, and when he did finally get a job, he got fired when his boss smelled alcohol on his breath. I was 20 years old, and I couldn't tell if any of that was because of mental illness or just everyday 20-year-old rebellion. And it didn't matter. I just had an endless tolerance for confusion and contradictions. 
because I was being loved in return. And I guess that memory is what makes me willing to see past James's contradictions and bad choices. For all the similarities I see between him and Steve, I also see one key difference. Steve's parents were educated and wealthy. When Steve fell down, failed out, or messed up, his parents were always there to bail him out. For James, there's none of that. He messed up and ended up on the street. That's when I think I'm finally getting what James has been trying to say to me. His dressing up, his whole game of tricking people into not thinking he's homeless. It's the only way they'll see him as a real person and not a problem to be solved. Only when I imagined him as someone I used to love, who was struggling and ill but not homeless, was I able to see James. Only then could I let go of my perfect homeless college student and accept James for who he is right now, a guy who's still figuring it all out. When I first told James's story, I'm not sure if I managed to convey this point, that he's a work in progress. But after his story first aired in December, as part of the original trilogy of homeless college student profiles, the audience reaction was stark. People wanted to give money. So much money, a listener set up crowdfunding sites to handle all the donations. But the charity was for the two other students in the story, two young women, Brittany and Ebony. One Bay Area couple wanted to give Brittany an apartment. They wanted to pay her rent so she could finish school. But James? No one called in for James. No one wanted to save him. I mean, I get it. James steals. That's not a compelling charity case. I think those two women, though, they represented something clean and blameless, a form of homelessness that could be solved with a donation. But James was messy. And there's part of me that knew people didn't want to help because of that. I think because he had a mental illness. And because despite his lies, he had been brutally honest. A few weeks after all this went down, my emails to James started bouncing back. He shut down his email address. He never had a phone. He got rid of it when he got rid of his old name. So I checked with the shelter. All they said was that James had, quote, transitioned out. I'm pretty sure that means he did not survive his last disciplinary hearing. Or he got sick of sitting through so many disciplinary hearings. I tried to look for James, but then I stopped. I knew his real name, and I found his parents' address and phone number. But I never called. I met James as the new James, on the brink of a new life. But he failed. He failed his second chance. And I witnessed it. Who was I to chase after him? I knew that if he was ever going to try again, I had to free him of the expectations. I had to let him go. When I try to picture James 10 years from now, I don't know if he'll be an architect in an office, living the dream he laid out on his resume, or if he'll be one of those people that we walk by on the sidewalk, too easy to ignore. Thanks to KQED reporter April Domboski for that story. Next up on Queued Up, 
we'll continue our exploration of young people struggling with homelessness, grappling to find their identity when they don't have a home. Cued Up is edited by me. I'm Sandhya Dirks. Additional editing from Carrie Feibel and Victoria Malion. Cued Up senior editor is Julia McAvoy. The executive producers are Holly Kernan and Ethan Lindsay. And you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>